Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be advised, this story contains adult content and graphic language. I've watched, I've watched almost a thousand of those type of press conferences over the years here in Orange County. And 23 years of covering that courthouse and press conferences like that, I've never seen that before. Welcome to Sleuth. I'm Linda Sawyer. On this episode, we are fortunate enough to have three guests on the program. Our first is Scott Sanders, who's one of our recurring guests. Scott is an attorney with the Orange County Public Defender's Office for nearly 26 years. Scott was the public defender in The People vs. Scott Decry, and in 2011, Scott Decry killed eight people at a beauty salon located in Seal Beach, California, making him the number one mass shooter in all of Orange County history. In 2014, Mr. Sanders discovered an improper use of jailhouse informants in the Decry case that he represented. He would later file a 754-page motion in the Wozniak case, which is another case he represented, laying out a 30-plus year history of informant misconduct. Revelations of deception and concealment in the Scott Decry case led to the recusal of the Orange County DA's office and later the dismissal of the death penalty. Our second guest is Paul Wilson. Together with his wife, Christy, they raised their family in Southern California for the last 26 years. Christy went to work one day at the Salon Meritage, and on October 12, 2011, she and seven others were killed by Scott DeCry. Paul became a vocal advocate for the death penalty, but increasingly shifted his focus to the conduct of the district attorney and the sheriff's department. In 2017, Paul Wilson spoke out about the actions of both agencies. Paul has raised questions about the legitimacy of the attorney general's investigation, which was announced in March of 2015, with no public action since. 
Paul Wilson is a victim of not only violent crime, but also a victim of the OC justice system. He is a relentless advocate for victims and the pursuit to uncover the corruption that he believes exists in the Orange County DA's office and the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And lastly, we have Scott Moxley from the Scott Moxley Confidential of the OC Weekly. Scott Moxley is an investigative journalist known for his relentless writing about law enforcement and government affairs. Two New York Times Magazine writers cited him for his Herculean job exposing Southern California law enforcement corruption. Mr. Moxley won Journalist of the Year honors at the Los Angeles Press Club for his writing focused on the Orange County Jailhouse Informant Scandal. He has won numerous other awards, including the Distinguished Journalist of the Year by the L.A. Society of Professional Journalists. We welcome all of them to Sleuth. Thank you all for being here today on Sleuth. We really appreciate your time. So all of you might not have known this. I know Scott Moxley is aware because he did write an article about it, but Rachel Buffett's sentencing just took place. And there was a press conference after, and of course, all the victims' families were there, as was the prosecutor. And so what should have been just an easy, pleasant closure turned out to be a roast of of me and of the podcast. So I wanted to take a look at the press conference and as well the confrontation that happened subsequent to the press conference with Steve Hare, uh, Sam Hare's father, one of the victim's fathers. So let's roll the tape and take a look at it. Editor's note, Sleuth was unaware at the time of the press conference that the press event footage would no longer be included in the pool coverage of the day's events at Rachel's trial. We therefore were not welcome to the footage from Dateline's sole camera crew, even though they shared the same press footage with their colleagues from 48 Hours, who also participated in the press conference. When asked for a copy of the presser, the answer we received from a Dateline representative was a previous financial arrangement for that five-minute press conference that we at Sleuth were not made aware at the time, nor were we given the same opportunity to participate, which, for the record, we would have gladly paid our fair share for access to the footage. So please keep in mind, this event is coming to you from a camera mic that one of our engineers happened to be recording as a backup camera for our coverage. Sleuth questions, is it because of the content of the press conference that we were denied access to the footage? The audio begins with Steve Hare expressing his frustration that Rachel Buffett did not receive the full 44-month maximum sentence. Then his wife's twin speaks out as well, followed by Julie's mom, June Kibuishi. And finally, Matt Murphy takes us through the case and the sentencing decision by Judge Hansen. But for some odd reason, Mr. Murphy decides to direct a line of questioning toward me. Okay, why don't you uh, take Sasuke? Well, I'm... Mixed emotions, personally, I can't speak for anybody else. I wish you would have gotten uh, 44 months in prison. 
And anything lower than that, I'm a little bit disappointed in that. I'm quite aware of California law. So, in a way, it should be, in a way, let my emotions go in this way. In a way, it's basically saying, you lose a lot, you know, this is what you're going to wind up year, 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 yeah, if you lose. But I'm just very frustrated. It's not certainly not happening. Most of these police follow. They did everything they could. And then what I gathered from the judge, her hands were tied as far as following the guidelines. So I'm very frustrated. What did what did Rachel's um, statement mean to you guys of anything? Uh, June, do you wanna answer? So you don't accept her apology, or do you um, feel it was an apology? That you could... I don't think it was an apology. It was like no. another, another lie, the last lie that she said. Are you aware she still never admitted lying? She never admitted lying in her apology. Yet she's well, one of the lies, and of course, especially when she tried to pin it on the same. Saying Dan, uh, Dan could have given the money to Sam. But five days earlier, she was there when Dan gave the money to Chris. She still was lying, and she still never knew. Now, anything from that girl is Is there some sense of satisfaction, though, that the judge obviously paid attention in court and, you know, she made her own statement? Is there is there any satisfaction from today for you guys? somehow to 
put things aside, but never to forget. They are not able, speaking horror actually, because I see all the postings, they cannot move on. And there is no closure, there is no such a thing. Well, you move on. You are set. I'll tell you exactly how much time. 320. I missed one because she had to stay in the So I haven't missed that day. But we record 320. And it's not the end. You'll, you'll keep going. I know my brother will. And he, what he would like to see is justice with every single one that had anything to do with this. And it wasn't just the two, they were more. Unfortunately, we have laws and we have to follow the laws and we can't go by feelings, which he always had feelings about Rachel Buffett. And the best, best thing that we can come to terms with that those feelings translated in reality, at least for her, not for the rest. However, because it is a murder case, it's not to say that if tomorrow more evidence comes forward, something breaks, that new trials will come to fruition. That's the way I do it. Matt, is the verdict what you expected or hoped for? Well, yes. Uh, we had a great jury that worked very hard. And uh, as, as the families pointed out, we're in the laws of the state of California. This, was, uh, this is what was available to us prosecution of the investigations and everything that we do. Um, this is something that uh, we're, we're very happy with the court. We feel that the court uh, did a great job. Um, the jury did a great job. It, it takes a while to get there. This is an example, I think, of uh, you know, the system working. Can you break it down for us? Or what? The counts and what, you know, it's a little confusing. She right. said two years. So there are, right. So essentially, uh, Two of the things that the court did today, she had the option of granting probation, which she did not do. And she also had the option of running the two counts concurrent with one another, so she would serve her time uh, at the same time with two counts. And the court exercised its discretion and decided not to do that, so she has to use certain sentences consecutively. Mr. Hur is absolutely right in the federal system, as well as the vast majority of states. That accessory of crime um, is linked the underlying crime itself. So most states, accessory after crime to murder, gives you a much broader sentencing range. In California, accessory after crime, uh, or accessory after the fact, constitutes its very own crime, and it has a 16-2-3 month um, sentencing range. So there's only so much the court can do, there's only so much that we can do um, as far as the time goes. But, um, you know, she's, uh, she's a convicted felon. She's going to get out. And interestingly, you know, when you talk about justice in a case like this, for the rest of her life, she, she's planning on going into a professional career. She's getting her master's in psychology right now. And anybody that goes to Google, that's ever going to Google her in the future, is going to know that she's involved in this. She, they're going to know what her role is. They're going to know that she lied to the police in front of the investigation. She delayed, you know, the... Uh, the investigation, she hurt these family members, and that's something that I think is going to follow the rest of her life. So, part of this is legal, part of it is uh, social, and I, I think the large part of the media that 
Can you explain how much was the maximum she could receive when she got it? So the, yeah, so basically the maximum she could get is 44 months, she got 32 months. <laughs> And that's, uh, it's not unreasonable for the court to do that. I know, obviously, the family, you know, you want the maximum every time, and we get that. But what the court did is by, by taking the 180 days off the end of that, she imposed a series of mandatory supervision, which essentially, even though it's done by the probation department now, under the new laws in California, it's essentially being on parole. Uh, so if she screws up, she can be violated and sent back to prison. But if you max somebody out, especially from uh, uh, you know, a relatively small amount of time, like you get it, a piece of 32 or etc. after you back in California, you get it. Once you finish it, done. The way the judge did this, uh, she's not done when she gets out. She's going to be under mandatory supervision. She's going to have to report. There's going to be people checking her, you know, her, her house. You know, it's, uh, she's not off the hook upon her release. For how long after structures that, and, you know, and to be honest with you, I haven't done a PC-32 in so long, there's been changes in the law, but it's either, I think it's three years. And how much time will she actually serve? Um, she's going to serve, well, it'll depend on the good time work time calculations of the, of the jail. Um, uh, she's she's going to serve over a year at this point forward. But they, uh, she's, she also, she had a problem in custody, so she was actually attacked by her inmates, so she is going to be, uh, she's going to be held in a separate part of the jail now, so I think that may affect her good time work time, but again, I'm not, I'm not, She'll be in Orange County. Can you just kind of big picture put this in perspective in terms of just everything from start to end? I mean, where, what is the, you know, does this sort of cap everything? It's been such a long journey for all of you guys. And, um, it seems like we've all been here for, you know, a decade together. So can you sort of like put it all in perspective? You know, just like talk about the case itself? A little bit, yeah. Okay, sure. Um, so basically, Dan originally engaged, Dan Wozniak, they were about to get married. We have, we have evidence that uh, Mr. Wozniak planned this whole thing um, in order to pay for their wedding. He uh, put together this diabolical, insane plot to murder um, Sam Hare and to get his, uh, his ATM card to pay for the wedding to pay for honeymoon. Um, he then used his cell phone to lure poor innocent Julie Kibuishi to Sam's apartment so he could murder her, stage it to look like it was, like it was a rape and use Sam's ATM card to get money out um, in order to, to attain his financial uh, The case went on, uh, in my view, in the Wozniak case, it took uh, way too long to get to trial. The, the people in his families that were suffering from cancer at the time, I believe that there was, um, they, it was uh, unnecessary and, and it took that long. But once it finally got going, and remember, we had a, uh, we had a Superior Court judge in this case that was so disgusting with some attackers and some of the accused of something. So that was the first time in Orange County history I think that had a uh, he was so disgusted with what he saw in the defense of York that he recused himself because he felt that he could not be fair. So it, it took way too long. He had to make way too many appearances. Um, but we 
finally, we, we tried it before a very good judge, uh, John Connolly, followed the law, did everything right. He gave the defense of Katie Wozniak every opportunity to, to, to run with virtually every theory, all the way up to the point that the defense wanted to denigrate the memory of a war hero who came back, he survived the Taliban, he got murdered by a cheeseball community theater actor named Danny Wozniak. Okay, so, um, the court put a stop to that idea with the defense that they could not, and the California law says you cannot assassinate the character of murder. That is one of those things that we shouldn't need a law on that, but we have one. The court held the defense to that, and the defense has been complaining about it ever since. Linda, you got any questions on that? You, you got any questions on that point, Linda? No, I don't. You sure? Okay. Uh, so, uh, these families have gone through a lot. They have, um, they've been, I, I can say on a personal note, um, they are the nicest people you could ever hope to meet. Uh, my heart breaks for them, and just did our entire prosecution team. Um, you know, and then, tragically, I, I'll tell you, you know, we have, um, the media has been so professional in the way they dealt with this. I have, I have nothing but respect for the difficult job that you guys do and the sensitivity that people have shown to these family members through this process, with one exception. And there's currently a podcast going on right now that is being used as a platform to denigrate the, the memory of Sam Hare. Um, I think that creates unnecessary emotional heartache for these family members. I think it's disgusting. We'd um, like not to participate in that podcast. The Postmates Police Department has elected not to participate in that podcast. They provided a platform for Mr. Wozniak's defense attorney to, to essentially uh, denigrate the victim of somebody who is without question totally innocent in this, in this murder. He had, did Sam Furr did nothing wrong leading up to his homicide. Oftentimes we deal with these cases where the victims are in some way, they're, they're using drugs, they're doing something wrong, and circumstances wind up leading to their death. In this particular case, he was totally innocent. The man served himself, served our country in Afghanistan. He survived 82 days of combat in a row at a place called Camp Keating that was overrun by the Taliban. We have acts of absolute heroism committed by this man who came back and was murdered. And now his memory is being dragged through the mud uh, by the defense team and somebody's actually giving him a media platform to do And I, I, I've never seen anything like that. And to the great credit, the vast majority of professional journalism the Orange County Register wouldn't touch them. None of them have touched them except for one person. And that is, uh, that's very, very disappointing. So. Is there anything you can say about, um, you know, the Wozniak, and I won't keep you guys longer, but as far as, you know, an appeal being filed or anything like that moving forward, or is during this... The, during the Wozniak? Yeah, or In California, there's an automatic appeal. There's an automatic appeal. So that every, every death penalty case in, uh, in California, there's an automatic appeal. Linda, I want to give you a chance to rebut that. Is it your position that Daniel Wozniak should not be uh, on death row? Never is that your position? Okay. Never said that once, but thank you. All right. Um, any other thoughts, questions? Anything you guys want to add? Yeah, any, I do. Any? How's Scott Sanders? Yeah, when he goes on a podcast, he says the first thing you hear is Sam Harris killed. Tell him I'll meet him anytime, anywhere. Have a debate with him, but you got to stop going after a dead man, a, an acquitted dead man. That's all I've got to say. He, he 
that standards, he put us through hell, if there is such a thing. Because he had the audacity to come up with examples that were absolutely ridiculous. And we were very thankful to the jurors that didn't buy his games and his tantrums that he had, like a little child, and then he was whining every time he would come into court. And we had to sit through hours of his whining and offensive behavior, especially towards Matt Murphy. So if there is such a thing of rebuttal or filing claims against him, I wish there would be a way. And we're still thinking about it. And by that I mean I. I just don't know what I face with that person. All right, thanks, guys. Okay, so we just saw the unedited press conference, and I'd like to first ask Mr. Sanders how he feels about what he just saw. Well, first of all, of course, you know, these are family members going through an emotional experience. They lost loved ones, and so I feel for them. Whether they think that or not, I really... I understand that they they probably don't, but I do. That's just... um, And I want to say that I've gotten to know you over the last three years, and I completely believe what you're saying, because I I know that you have a lot of heart and you feel for the victims' families. It's difficult if you're in a case like this to see what we were doing and at some point to see it anything other than you're just getting in the way of our justice. So, you know, when the family member who, who's who been involved and been present a lot is talking about, well, I put up all these battles, you know, those are things that I think were all appropriate. And I think historically they will prove out to be appropriate. We raised a lot of important issues, and that's what happens in a death penalty case. Um, there were more issues that we were actually would have preferred to pre- to proceed on and pursue. So, I've been a crime reporter for 30 years, and I know Mr. Moxley's just about the same. And most capital cases take about that length of time to get into the courtroom. Would you agree with me, Mr. Moxley? Absolutely. Definitely. You know, so, you know, in our case, took about the average period of time for a capital case. And as we know, the case of Rachel Buffett took longer than the capital case. Yeah. But I know you're the inclination of Mr. Murphy is to kind of push it back toward the Wozniak case, the Wozniak case. In terms of the other issues, there's there's just so much. Obviously, on the podcast, you I don't know the number of hours that the podcast has taken. Almost 17 hours of content okay. at this point, and we're not finished. So I think the issues with regard to um, Sam Hur and the prior incident took up about four minutes in total of the entire podcast. So when Mr. Murphy says the podcast is about denigrating the memory, um, obviously that's not what the podcast has been about. It's a huge hyperbole. Right. Well, there was a question you asked me. You asked me a question. I answered it candidly. It kind of mushroomed where Mr. um, I asked you specifically what you felt was one of the most egregious rulings in the capital case that you defended in your, with your client, Daniel Wozniak, and your response was about Sam's past not getting in. Yeah, Mr. Murphy said, essentially, that we actually were almost out of bounds in asking for the admissibility of that evidence. That's certainly not the case. I mean, that, that will be a debated issue on appeal, but that is once uh, his personality, his character went in, absolutely it was appropriate for, to a- 
for us to ask, and I think for us to actually have it be admitted. It wasn't, but that happens a lot. You know, in all forms of criminal litigation, certainly in capital litigation, the defendants are going to lose. I don't think that has anything to do with whether we should have appropriately pursued it. We would have been incompetent, candidly, if we didn't pursue that issue. I think only appellate counsel looking back at our work would have said, why in the world did you not pursue that? And we disagree with the ruling, but that's all that was. We asked for it. We were, And you felt the door was open to do that when Mr. Murphy discussed his time as a veteran. Right. So, I mean, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the episode. I don't want to um, belabor the point, but that was exactly it. We were not seeking to introduce it. In fact, as we've kind of said, we weren't even really prepared to introduce it. We thought there was going to be a limitation on what was going to go before the jury. And then the next thing we knew, we were getting into issues like what was going on in Afghanistan versus the other option for the prosecution, which was just to rely simply upon the effect of the loss in terms of loved ones and family and friends, which also would have been extremely powerful. But they decided to go to this next spot. We said, if if you're going to do that, then there should be a whole picture we lost. But certainly, again, the podcast hasn't been about that. Or assassinating Sam Harris. No. And and I've said from the beginning, no matter what somebody did or didn't do before this moment in time, they shouldn't die. Nothing like this should happen to anyone. So I've never moved from that or suggested that his life had any less value. Of course, me as a defense lawyer, we're seeing value in lives that many people couldn't see. So we understand that. And I feel that I would like to say on the record, have I ever once in all the times that we've met, have I ever said to you, I believe your client doesn't belong on death row? You haven't said that. Thank you. Mr. Moxley, that's your office, that Santa Ana Courthouse. And I've nobody's. Watched a, I've watched almost a thousand of those type of press conferences over the years here in Orange County. And 23 years of covering that courthouse and press conferences like that, I've never seen that before. And that was, other than, than the uh, introduction of you, that was pretty much what I've seen all the time the emotion from the victims and the prosecutor making statements. But coming after you, that was rare. And Wait, you're shocked by that too, Paul? Oh, I'm totally shocked by that. It's just, um, you know, it's a perfect example of the unprofessionalism that lives in that office. And uh, to see that, I'm I'm completely blown away by it. As we all know here, this has happened before where a prosecutor thought that Mr. Wilson here was Moxley and went after him, showing a little bit of unhingement there. Oh, did that happen to you as well? Well, at at a... which hearing was that decry? One of the decry hearings. The Paul, you were you were in attendance, and he thought the prosecutor thought you, in fact, were Mr. Moxley. That's correct. Huh. What happened there? And he went. Uh, well, I'll let he, you do it since he, you were there. He, he <laughs> came. He came from behind the podium that he was standing at. Um, I was behind uh, Channel 7's camera, and he came from behind the podium and approached me, pointing his finger, like, "Is is that Mr. Moxley?" And I came from behind the camera and approached him and let him know, no, my name is Paul Wilson and I'm from the Seal Beach Salon shootings with your office. And I'm a victim's family member. Victim's my wife family. died That's in the correct. Seal Beach yes. shootings. I think, it, I think it actually came it re- came related to the Decry case. It was the informant Oscar Moriel. It was, it was, his, more, it was the sentencing of Moriel a couple of days before Christmas. So that was the informant, that was all about the informant scandal and the decry case, which is a separate case from what this podcast has been focusing on. But you represented both clients, both Daniel Wozniak and Scott Decry. Right. Okay. 
I wanted to ask you, Scott, Mr. Moxley, um, I have two Scots here, so I'm going to go back to the misters, if that's okay. Um, I wanted to ask you, Mr. Moxley, how do you feel when you hear the prosecutor not only roast me and my podcast, but he made a suggestion that all the other journalists are professional because they're not covering the podcast, except for one, and that's you. I take that as a badge of honor because my position in covering any court hearing is to my readers, to tell the truth to my readers. So I'm not editing out anything that's major. The motion that Mr. Sanders made in Wozniak pertaining to the victim's uh, his criminal history is part of the court record. And there was a huge battle in court. And I'm not going to sit there and go, well, I'm, I'm not going to share that with my readers. That's what happened in court. It's a fact. That's not how I work. And on some level, he, I think he was, without mentioning your name, he was referencing you because you have, in fact, been covering the podcast. I mean, how do you take that statement? I'm not worried about that. I think my position is more, um, look, I've, I've been covering trials here for many years, and the work that you've done has been outstanding. You've taught, I've sat in the courtroom for hours and hours in, in this case. You taught me many things that I never knew. And um, so I think focusing attention on, what, on your work, that was important to do. The public needs to know what else you discovered. People can disagree with your conclusions or whatever information you're putting out there, but highlighting it for the public and digging as deeply as you did, discovering so many important issues that are still lingering there as they're trying to wrap up the case. It's important. Well, it's nice to uh, have the appreciation and the respect of another fellow investigative journalist, and I really do appreciate that. I have been working on this for three years. I know at one point you said to me, I think you beat my ass on this one, and you never have your ass beaten on anything. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Scott Moxley, probably, I have to tell you, of all the journalists I have read and covered in my lifetime, I've never been more impressed by a person. And I just think what the work you're doing singularly, I feel like you're an island unto yourself in this town. And I am just so amazed at the Thank work you, you appreciate do. That. And uh, you you beat out everybody else. I got you on one, maybe, <laughs> but you got it on every other story that came out of this county for how many years? I, Paul, I wanted to ask you, how you feel about watching this press conference. I know that you were sitting in the courtroom in front of me, and we talked a little bit about the Thousand Oaks shooting and how it brings back so much for you. Does participating Mm -hmm. in the sentencing, I know you came for the verdict. I I saw you in a couple of other times in the courtroom for, for Rachel Buffett's accessory trial. How does it feel when you're watching the press conference? Well, as I watch this right now, you know, it's a very emotional piece for me because I've stood in that same position right there for almost seven years. And it's tough. It's really tough for me. And I can understand the frustration. But what I can also understand is, from my experience, is we clearly see what's going on here, which is the win-at-all-cost mentality of that district attorney's office. I have a... um observation or comment based on watching uh, Mr. Murphy's performance during the press conference. One is that the sister of the hers mentioned in her comments three or four feet away from the prosecutor that she said was it just wasn't the two. There was more than as the far t- as the murders the murder. of Sam and Julie right. that it wasn't just Daniel Wozniak alone. And 
that's the theme that you've been exploring that seems to cause, cause so much frustration for the prosecutor. The other part is that when we switched judges from Stotler, Stotler recused himself and John Conley, a former homicide prosecutor in Matt's unit, when we're covering the case, there's this incredible moment of bias. Matt says he made perfect rulings. He never did anything wrong. And Every, he followed the law meticulously. He followed the law. There was one point where Mr. Sanders filed an important motion in the death penalty case, and the, and the judge sealed it, and he kept it sealed. But he let Matt Murphy have it and respond and write his own brief. We had for days Murphy's response to what we couldn't read. He let that be on the record. I so remember that. The dailies got to write stories about Matt's response to something that was sealed. That's, that's not right. And yeah. he should be embarrassed. Both Matt Murphy and Judge Conley should be embarrassed about that. I remember that quite well, and I'm sure you do as well, Mr. Sanders. I do. That had to have been another frustrating moment in a series. Right. And that's part of, you know, look, that's if you're candidly not like, oh, poor defense counsel, but defense counsel is going to be up against a lot of battles. So that's why we do have a thick skin in the, even these situations. Watching it, you know, we're all going to – it hurts because you you hate to see family members convinced that you are this – terrible figure. This evil monster. Yeah. Be, that's, you know, nobody wants that. But on the other hand, as you've said before, they're in a terrible position. They're in so much pain. And and the sister's right. That pain doesn't go away. So I understand. And I, you know, I go back and forth, even with Mr. Her. I, I don't like a lot of the things he said, but I also understand how much he hates what's happened to his, he and his wife's lives. I mean, these you're are, a family man. Yeah, you, you understand are, that yeah. kind of pain. So, you know, I would rather they didn't hate me on an individual level. I, I really would. But there's not much you can do at some point. Well, I can only say that I also joined you in that. I wish Mr. Hare didn't feel the way he does about me now. I have spent quite a lot of time with him over the years because together we really did collaborate on this and, and share a lot of information. And I haven't changed my opinion. I haven't moved off of my mission, which is to uncover the truth about everything that happened in the murder of his son and his friend Julie. And I wish that he could see past the four minutes of a 17-hour podcast uh, that's still clocking so that he can appreciate that... Uh, I'm still focused on the end result, which is to make sure everybody pays. But I, I do want to reiterate, just because this statement was said, I don't believe Daniel Wasnack should have gotten the death penalty. And and, and that's your opinion. Yeah, and it, again, I yeah. just tried to tell Mr. Hare, I am not going to censor an invited guest on my podcast. I will never do that. I am a proponent, as I know Mr. Moxley is. We live our lives according to the First Amendment. And you have a right to your opinion. I don't believe, you know, and, and it starts for me that I don't believe these proceedings were completely fair from beginning to end. And so... And that's your I, opinion. Yeah. I'd like to now show you what unfortunately happened after this press conference uh, when Mr. Hare decided to walk over to me after its conclusion. Editor's note, for the benefit of our listeners, I just want to clarify that the gist of what you're about to hear Mr. Hare say to me is everything to do with episode three, where Scott Sanders mentioned 
Steve Hare's son, Sam Hare's history of being charged with murder. And then in episode four, I gave Mr. Hare a chance to respond to what Mr. Sanders said about his son's background. He had five minutes, and then Mr. Sanders had the opportunity to respond for five minutes. But it did take Mr. Sanders up until our air date to decide whether or not he was going to engage in that conversation. He finally did, and I didn't have any more time left in my studio to give Mr. Hare the immediate chance to respond to Mr. Sanders' comments, uh, but I did offer him the chance to go on the next episode. Mr. Hare declined because I believe at that point he got upset after what he heard Mr. Sanders say. So here's the tape, and you can hear the conversation that happened after the press conference for yourselves. In You know what? How do you think I feel when the first thing I hear is Scott Sanders say Sam's a killer? I heard there's a guest on my show. I'm not going to censor. I believe in the first thing But you didn't give me a pen to immediately respond. I told you, you could anytime you want. It's a little late now. It's a month, month and a half. No, you know what? Okay, I'm good. So what you just saw was Mr. Hare coming over to me and my understanding is he's exasperated because he felt he didn't get the last word. What happened was after the episode, the episode three, where I asked Mr. Sanders about the ruling that he felt was uh, of all of them, the one that upset him the most. And obviously Mr. Hare was very upset with the way in which that conversation was framed. I spent about three minutes talking about Sam's past. I don't think you spent more than a minute talking about the ruling. And it seems like he still has not been able to move past that. And so he came over to me and he said he wanted a chance to respond. I have always given Mr. Hare the opportunity to respond. And he doesn't seem to remember that, I guess. But he still... And I will state it for the record once more. You, Mr. Hare, always are invited to come on this podcast and speak your mind and say whatever you want to say about the way in which we discussed your son's past in the context of this case. I'd love to know how you feel about what you saw, Mr. Moxley. Well, I can't help but think about my first experience when I met him after the murders and and I was at his house with his wife and... He was so emotional. I spent maybe three and a half, four hours there. And he was full of anger and rage. And I was worried about him when I left. And I've seen him many times in the courthouse in recent years. And what comes to me, not getting, getting saving you for last, was just he, he's taken a deep breath. 
he's able to smile more, even though it's never he's never going to get over what happened to his son. His whole persona has taken a, a much lighter position, and you know, I I I respect him for standing up and doing what he thinks is right. But I also respect you, and I know that's a difficult position. I've been in that position as well, and um, it's unfortunate because I think. Matt kind of fueled that with what he had said leading up to that those moments when it really wasn't necessary. I think that Mr. Murphy seems to be fueling the victim's pain in his frustration with me and the podcast and the guests that I bring on to speak their opinion. But I do believe that it's Mr. Murphy himself that's upset with the things that we are discussing on this podcast. And I think it would behoove him to just be straight about that. Right. Because I don't think it's fair or it's right to be using the victim's family's pain that way. I mean, how do you feel about that, Paul? Well, obviously, I I, I don't agree with that. And um, they, they that office is very good at using the victim's and the when, victim's when pain. To, when they need to. When they want to and when they need something. And you know, I, I mean, this is tough for me to comment on this because I, those are tough shoes to walk in. And I understand the frustration and, and the grief. And You understand it firsthand. Firsthand. And it never goes away. The healing never goes. It, it, it never lets up. And the emotion, you can get carried away in that. And, and I understand that. But you do. If, if you're going to be in this position and walk in those shoes, you have to, you have to look at both sides. And in, in this in this case, and the big picture, and the big picture, and in this case, I mean, it, it's 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 much like mine, and there's there's a lot of fault to be put on that DA's office. And I did over and over. I met with Mr. Hare and his wife almost weekly for nearly three years, and I always reminded him, I'm a journalist, and I am going to have to tell the story of your son's past because it's part of the reason he was the target. For these murders. And I, I please accept that and appreciate that. And he he always acknowledged that. So it's it's unfortunate. I know you're jumping in here. No, I'm just jumping something. in to say, you know, I still feel for him as I'm hearing that because I understand that. He just is still just a ton of pain. And even with all of this, I look at him and I go, as much as he, he hates me um, at this moment and maybe forever, I still feel badly for him. And I feel like, boy, if he wants the last word, have it. I won't say another word. You can say whatever you want about me. And he said a lot of things about me in a lot of contexts. And look, a lot of that stuff I've just let roll you know, off my back. And that's it's just part of doing this work. People are going to get very frustrated in an experience like this. So even listening to him now, I kind of wish if I could do it all over again, I didn't stop him from having the last word, of course. I'm just saying I kind of wish he would have because I know that he feels like there's something that he wants to say. And even though it's aimed at me, I kind of wish he could have it. And if he wants to, I certainly would make the assurance that I wouldn't even ask you to come back on. So if he comes back on, he, he comes back on, he can say whatever he wants. And, I've, and I have presented that to him many times, and uh, I echo that sentiment. Well, let, me, let me toss in here a little bit that I, I know I've, I've observed it firsthand. There are many great people in the DA's office who do great victim service. Uh, incredible service over the years. I've watched it. Um, but I think what Paul's raising here is an interesting point that 
sometimes it doesn't play out well. He's clearly, Mr. Wilson's clearly a victim. And yet, tell me if I'm right, you were tossed out of the district attorney's building during a press conference when they found out it was it was him. Yes, correct. What? Yes. <laughs> what t- when they were that. announcing the uh, the Golden State killer, I showed up to attend the press conference. And initially, they were going to let me in until my name circulated around the office. And a gentleman by the name of Paul Carvo came out and told me that I was not welcome in there. And this is after the cover story that I wrote featuring the two of oh, them. Oh, so let's let's get it in the context for our, our listeners. You did write an article about the story about this relationship, which we're going to get into in a future sure. episode, the relationship between Mr. Sanders and Mr. Wilson, Paul Wilson. And so it was after – and it, it's basically a story about what an unlikely pair, right? Right. Um, Mr. Mr. Sanders represented the person that killed his wife. And so yet together they have formed this alliance to seek out and try to shine a light on the, on the corruption that's going on in the justice system in Orange County. And so after that article that you wrote, that's when it happened? Yeah, it was probably a couple of weeks afterwards. And, and Tony was, Rakakis was holding a big press conference to announce the Golden State that they were they were teaming up and making a, a, te- a group effort, and like I I showed up just like the media. I stood in line. I wrote my name on the piece of paper, and I was all they told me at ten o'clock. They'll open the doors, and you're ready to go in. And I went outside to wait. About five minutes later, uh, Mr. Carvel came out and said, "We've thought about this, and we're not going to allow you into this. You're not allowed to come in the doors today." I mean, that's... So I I waited until 10 o'clock and everybody went in and I attempted to walk through the doors and they escorted me out again. They did? Yes. How did you feel about that? It's a public place. It's a public place. I'm a citizen. Why can't I attend? They're afraid of the did questions you know about that I'm going to ask. Mr. Yeah, Sanders? I knew about it. And it doesn't surprise me because Paul's been up against a lot of this stuff. And I think there's probably been more than one where you've been... Uh, at least they've wanted to kind of keep you away. And look, he's not just a citizen. He's he's what the, the DA's office usually treasures. I mean, right. he's a victim of a very, very serious case. So that's, that's unusual treatment. But it's less unusual when you consider for them the fact that he has reached some mutual understanding with a person they don't like very much. I guess that's me. And who's taken an adverse position to them explains it. It's he's his importance as a victim has become far less um since he's spoken out about Doesn't what he thinks is wrong anymore. yeah so he's not he's not considered one of them so you're feeling the repercussions of choosing to once again look at the big picture here and and make this a journey that you've decided is important to you absolutely without a doubt how does that make you feel, Scott, covering this for so many years when well, such stuff happens? One of the things I think is important for the listeners to know is that in my article, the, the pivot point for Mr. Wilson was the realization that the district attorney's protest about how much he was for the victim was really hollow. And there was a meeting you might want to describe where it dawned on you, if my memory's right, that... You, you're looking at him and you saw nothing in his eyes and basically said, I'll make the decisions I want. I don't I don't need your input. Something to that effect. Right. Please, please share. Yeah, sure. This is when we had found out that there had been a, and Scott, you might want to 
chime in just to refresh my memory, but there had been a deal put on the table. And this would have been about a year, year, year and a half, a little over a year into the case. A little, yep. It was, it was in 2000. There were several times actually where it was suggested. Um, so I'm not sure which time that was, but in 2014. It would have been we, one of the first times yeah, it yeah. was introduced directly in, in, in court. So us as the family members sitting in the courtroom. They wanted to share with are you hearing the, this. The, the plea are, deal that they were considering. No, we, they weren't sharing with us. We were hearing Mr. Sanders got saying that, you know, this deal's on the table and they're deciding not to take it. And we looked at each other like, what, what deal? What, what deal? What, what are you talking about? So as, as, as usual, after court, we would go back into the little DA's office and have um, discussion about what had happened. And of course it came up and Mr. Wagner, um, Scott Simmons, Scott Simmons had uh, told us what was going on. And these are two of the prosecutors. I I just couldn't believe that was, that was out there and that we weren't. So I demanded an immediate meeting with Tony himself. I got that meeting. And it was very brief. What was the deal that was being offered? We, we exactly what we got seven years later, uh, life, uh, life in prison without parole, special circumstances, gun Ple- charge, right. pleading to everything, everything that we ended up getting just, it came seven, a lot longer. So, you know, I remember sitting across from Tony and Scott Simmons and dad Wagner in there. And I emphasize to Tony that I can't understand how you would have this and not bring it to the families at least to let us know and how, how, why why Consult would we just with us. why would we just hear this in court and not have any idea and he just looked at me with that callous and those empty eyes and said to me well the reason is Mr. Wilson cuz it's not your decision it's my decision and we are seeking nothing other than the death penalty plain and simple that was the end of the conversation. So it was shocking. Shocking. So getting back to the press conference footage, Mr. Moxley, you know Matt Murphy better than anybody here today. What is your final observation? You could see he was thinking about what he what he's going to say. He's an incredibly articulate prosecutor. He controls and dominates courtrooms. There's no doubt. Has done that for a long time. But going after you in that way, I kind of crossed the line. Why do you think Matt behaved the way he did in the presser? I don't know. I don't know. Mr. Sanders, why do you think Mr. Murphy acted as he did? Well, these aren't things that he once talked about. You know, he wants Wozniak to just go out for 20 years and, and in his mind, hopefully be executed at that point. He doesn't want to go through you week after week, analyzing whether the two cases are consistent, whether arguments are changing. I mean, that's what he didn't talk about here, although that's what I thought he was most upset about, right? He, the most one, definitely. Right. He's upset because we've been talking about the difference in the arguments and the different interpretations that should be used for different pieces of evidence. That's conspicuously missing from what he said here. Instead, he's, he used the thing that will rev people up, right? Um, you're not being fair to Steve Her that's the kind of stuff that he he wants to get out there. He doesn't want to talk about because he's free too. He, you've offered to him many times. He can come to this podcast. I have many podcast times in and, writing. Yeah, and, and I know you've made it so that 
he won't even have to worry about a last word from me. He can be the last word. He can speak as long as he wants. I imagine you'd let him talk for a couple hours if he wanted and refute everything that's been said. His press people said that he would come on only if I retracted everything that I've said. But that doesn't him. make any sense because he is, as Mr. Moxley just said, there's no question. He's articulate. He's smart. He's very good in the courtroom. He doesn't need a retraction. If he owns this evidence in the way he would suggest he does without saying it here, he can do it. He'll powerfully refute everything that I've said, all of my analysis. So, Mr. Murphy, if you're listening, you are welcome to come on the podcast and speak your opinion, just like all my other guests. The podcast has been out for nearly three months, and we have been able to develop quite a listening base. And some of those listeners send me comments and the overwhelming sense of the comments are that they're just, it's incredulous to so many why the DA didn't charge her with murder. Hasn't. Well, you know, we've talked about it before on the podcast. I don't, I'm not going to really take issue completely with whether he should or he shouldn't. I think you can make those calls. He's made his call, but the term came up when at all costs. You don't, in the DA's office that has existed to date, you try not to come back unsuccessfully. And that case, in his mind, may be one that there's a lesser chance of success, that that maybe he doesn't think at this point is strong enough. Now, you've developed a bunch of evidence that I think would arguably help him quite a bit. That was actually given to him, a dossier of 10 pages of evidence that was, in fact, given to him. And in fact, used in many instances. I sat through that trial and I felt, and I think I've said this to you in a previous episode, that he presented a case for murder right. yeah. in the accessory after the fact trial. And it's just ironic that our listeners and jurors that I spoke to believe that she was more involved in these murders, yet the prosecutor wouldn't charge her with murder. Well, and also, look... This is Steve Herr's number one mission, right? He wants accountability for all people involved. And he has frustration because I said something I won't even repeat at this moment. But 98% has been your analysis of that and talking about that evidence. And even here at the press conference at the very end, what do you hear them saying? They're saying we still want accountability. And the one person who's been pressing for accountability like none other has been you. Thank you. I and I won't stop. And I think Mr. Moxley knows that passion, right? That's and right. So much a part of your <laughs> life. Well, I just want to thank all of you gentlemen for coming in today to, to speak to uh, us on Sleuth. And Mr. Moxley, my colleague, thank you for your time. You. And Mr. Wilson, our condolences for your loss and appreciate what you're doing on behalf of uh, Orange County. Thank and, you. Uh, Mr. Sanders, keep fighting the fight. Thank you. Next time on Sleuth, we're going to surprise you with a guest who I like to call my deep throat. She's come forward since Sleuth has been published with revelations that will astonish you more than any other episode you've heard to date. After three years of digging and sleuthing on this case, we are finally able to reveal the definitive pieces of this murderous puzzle. 
You will not want to miss a single minute. If you enjoyed this episode of Sleuth, share it with a friend. And be sure to leave a rating or review. Follow Sleuth on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.